Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. You can also find me on all the major third-party podcast directories like Google, Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. I also have a blog that I started writing in early in 2019. You can check that out as well. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is October 18th, 2021, and I'm continuing on with my analysis of the September 30th, 2021 hearing in the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Actually, it was a subcommittee of Energy and Commerce titled Consumer Protection and Commerce. And in the prior episodes, we got up to Linda Livingstone's testimony, and I said I wanted to devote a single episode to that because it's so important, because she's not just some university president that they pulled out of a hat to appear at this hearing. She is one of the most powerful people in all of college sports, and you would never have known that from the way that she portrayed herself and her interests at that hearing. Before I get to Dr. Livingstone, though, I I want to address why I think this hearing is so important. Because this really is the window into where the NCAA is heading on the backside of the beating that it took in the summer of 2021. What happened in June of 2021 was really bad for the NCAA. I mean, they just got pummeled. They were trying their best to get a preemption provision in place before this July 1st deadline when the state name, image, and likeness laws were set to go into effect. There were like six state laws that were set to go into effect. And the NCAA had another dog and pony show in the Senate Commerce Committee on June 9th of 2021. And they were asking for preemption and man, they were pressing hard. And I think they thought they were going to get it and they did it. And that was a huge blow. And then they went into panic mode on name, image, and likeness because they didn't have a plan B because they never intended to offer these benefits in the first place. And they never intended to have to actually contend with state legislation that was going to go into effect. This just blew up right in their faces. And it is the direct product in my judgment of Mark Emmert's mismanagement of the entire name, image, and likeness market. And then just a couple of weeks after that hearing, you had the Austin decision, a unanimous decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, basically telling the NCAA, you're not special. You don't get antitrust immunity. You got to play by the same rules as everybody else. And there was some language there that just wasn't good for the NCAA. And then heading up right up onto this July 1st deadline, Mark Emmert on June 30th, seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, the NCAA announces a quote-unquote interim policy on name, image, and likeness. They didn't change a single rule, not a single word of bylaw 12.5 that relates to promotional activities and governs all the limits on name, image, and likeness compensation, the prohibitions on name, image, and likeness compensation. They did nothing at the legislative level, and they just waved the white flag and dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions and then said, you deal with it. Uh, It was just a a stunning abdication of responsibility. And uh, they really didn't get called to the woodshed on that the way they should have. And people like Anthony Gonzalez, 
who was behind this hearing in large part, the September 30th hearing. And he and Emanuel Cleaver have this bill, the Level Playing Field Act, that he is so desperate to get on the House floor. But he was basically making Mark Embert out to be a hero on July 1st in his press release. And he said, wow, this is a great day for student athletes. Hooray for the NCAA. Hooray for Mark Embert. They did it. They finally did it. They made good on their promise. That's exactly what Gonzalez said. And then he said, oh, by the way, we still need to preempt all these state laws. Uh, it was just a nonsensical position. And he's been carrying the water for the NCAA all along. He was the very first witness to testify in the February 2020 hearings in the Senate. And he set the tone. He was the golden boy for the NCAA. And I think after some of those comments, June 30th and July 1st that I talked about in a prior episode or two, I think some of that, the, there's a little tarnish on that gold. And right now, I think that uh, Gonzalez and his compatriots on this bill, they're in panic mode. And I mentioned in a prior episode that Jan Schakowsky, she is the chair of the subcommittee of this Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee in the House. And she made some reference to a letter or letters that had been submitted by Cleaver and Gonzalez and Right after the hearing, I went to the congressional record, went to the uh, subcommittee's website, couldn't find anything. And I went back just yesterday to, to check out the website, to sp look for those letters and, and they were there. So the record's been supplemented and we have these letters. One is a joint letter from Emmanuel Cleaver and then Colin Allred. And he also was an original co-sponsor of that bill. Both of them are African-American. Allred played football at Baylor. There's a Baylor connection there. And he references that in, in the letter. And then Gonzalez uh, submits a separate statement or separate letter. It is clear from the tone of those letters that these guys are in panic mode and they are desperate to get this bill on the floor and get enough votes to get it passed. And NCAA is coordinating with its compatriots in the Senate and there's uh, communication there and they're planning a strategy to try to get at least preemption. That's what they really need right now. And it looks pretty clear to me from the structure of the hearing, from the witness selection, from the substance of the testimony, that the NCAA and its uh, behind-the-scenes lobbyists and manipulators are going to do anything in their power to get a preemption bill in place. And it's getting a little reckless. And I think they were reckless in the way that they presented Linda Livingstone and I think she made a really bad call here and, and she's on the wrong side of this issue. And I think as this plays out, she's going to be on the wrong side of history. And I think she's going to look back on this and say, what in the world was I thinking? And I'll explain why when we get to whose interest she purported to represent and whose interest she was actually representing. But I want to talk a little bit about the preemption and it will serve the NCAA's goals in two important ways if they can get it. And I see growing support for that single component of any legislation that comes out of the United States Congress. And that's where the NCAA has been putting all its energy and all its lobbying money. And they are going full tilt on preemption. And it gives them two things. One, it is a way to try to stem the bleeding that is occurring right now in the name, image, and likeness market and the free market components that exist in that market. There aren't many, but there's some free market activity there. 
that is disproving all the NCAA's dishonest narratives about how a, an unregulated nil market, or at least a nil market that's not regulated in an iron-fisted way by the NCAA, that it's going to bring college sports to a fatal collapse. And there is zero evidence that the activity that's occurring right now in this name, image, and likeness market is decreasing consumer demand for any college sports product or resulting in any inequities that are harming any non-revenue interests, any HBCU interests, any interests outside of the Power Five. Zero evidence of that. And zero evidence that within the Power Five market that there is some a discriminatory inertia towards all of these star athletes and away from popular, in some ways more popular, non-revenue athletes. There's zero evidence of that. And remember, we're in the honeymoon phase here. And so you have some of these nil deals being covered like the moon landing. And in many cases, they aren't even substantiated. We don't even know whether they exist and, and to the extent to which they're real. But the ones that we think are real, like deals with the Oklahoma State quarterback and the Clemson quarterback. But those deals were driven in part by the athletic reputation of those athletes, and they tanked. <laughs> They've tanked. <laughs> and it remains to be seen how this no market is going to shake out. But I, I just think that when uh, this thing has an opportunity to work within some free market framework, it will work itself out. It's not going to be the collapse of college sports. There aren't going to be these gross inequities. And athletics department budgets aren't going to have to shift resources away from non-revenue sports. And heaven forbid that a Power 5 school have to use actual university operating expenses to pay for any athletics expense. That's what happens in 90% of the college sports world. That is the overwhelming rule rather than the exception. And this notion that athletics departments have to be fully self-sustaining is a product solely of the Power Five. And that goes back to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. We're going to talk a lot about that because that really was front and center in Livingstone's testimony. And it came up really in this hearing in a way that was as direct as I have seen it portrayed since Miles Brand invented it in 2006. This notion that you maximize the revenue in uh, big-time football and big-time men's basketball and you justify the maximization of those commercial and professional products by taking that money and diverting it to downstream beneficiaries that, in ways that create, quote-unquote, participation opportunities. And it's a massive, regressive transfer of wealth. There's no question about that. And the NCAA, in this context, they're so desperate now, I think, to try to throw something on the wall that's going to stick with this group of decision makers and this group of congressmen and women that they're pulling out all the stops. They're just, they're not concerned about collateral damage. They're not concerned about the purity. They're worried about getting votes. They're counting votes. And the second aspect of this, beyond just trying to put some of the toothpaste back in the tube on this nil market, what the NCAA also really is afraid of is that they're going to lose the advantage that they created on the very front end of this intervention in Congress in 2020. And they created that advantage by just blitzkrieging the legislative process through high-powered lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people. And they were having their way. 
in 2020 in a Republican-controlled Senate. And through this carefully crafted, carefully constructed manipulation of the political process, the NCAA and the Power Five got buy-in into federal preemption of any state regulation in uh, the area of college athletics without any discussion about what preemption is, how it had traditionally been used, and whether it could ever be a proper tool for the benefit of a nonprofit association. After that June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee, June 9th of 2021, where the NCAA was trying desperately to get preemption, I did a couple of episodes. One was on June 14th called Preemption Fever, and then one on June 16th called More on Preemption with the Senate Grant, the NCAA Sovereign Status sovereign state status. Those are episodes 25 and 26. I talk at length about what preemption is, but just a little recap here to put into perspective what exactly the NCAA and the Power Five and Linda Livingstone are asking for here. Preemption is an extraordinary federal power. It derives from Article 6 of the Constitution and the Supremacy Clause, which gives the federal government the right under the Constitution to supersede state law, but only in the most extraordinary cases and only to preserve the most vital national interests. And preemption has been used, for example, in civil rights, nuclear safety, national security, health and safety, and other areas that are of utmost national importance. And they often relate to our national and economic security. And we have to remember that under our Constitution, we have a very carefully calibrated allocation of power between the federal government and the state government. And at least in theory, we're a government of limited federal powers and authorities and encroaching on state powers or telling states that they can't legislate in a certain subject matter area is really a powerful tool that the federal government has. And it's used very cautiously because it does disrupt this allocation between federal and state authorities. And in this case, what they're saying is that the private interests of a nonprofit association are on the same level with nuclear safety and civil rights and national security and uh, health and safety. That's what the NCAA is saying. And that is an extraordinary ask, what they're asking for here. And because of the way that they were able to get this pumped through, they just were able to leap over the most important question in this entire debate. And we still haven't had that discussion. To this day, we haven't had that discussion. And people are just saying, preemption, preemption, preemption. The NCAA has essentially won the positioning argument on preemption. And if this opportunity slips away, they may never be able to get that momentum back. I mean, they've spent millions and millions of dollars and thousands of man hours trying to make this power play a reality in the Senate and now in the House. And remember, preemption is just one of the three planks of the NCAA's power play in their quest for the Iron Throne. They also want antitrust immunity and a provision that students can't be athletes. And those two are increasingly unlikely in the short run. But this preemption power is one that at least has some traction in Congress. And that's why I think the NCAA is so eager 
to get that locked in. The NCAA, the Power Five, and all their minions are just desperate to get their foot in the door and get a piece of legislation in place that they can use to build upon in the future. Because remember, in the history of the NCAA's relationship to Congress, which now spans almost 120 years, Congress has never passed a substantive piece of legislation regulating in the area of college sports. There have been these hearings, and almost all those hearings have been directed to trying to bring the NCAA in compliance with basic principles of free and fair competition or with due process or with basic American values and principles. And this is a unique circumstance because as I've said before, and this is just really important to understand, the NCAA went on offense here. They went to Congress. Congress didn't come to them. And if they come up empty here, and then this nil marketplace settles in and everybody is okay with it and it becomes the new normal. That is bad, bad news for the NCAA in its quest to remain relevant in the college sports world. And that's what this hearing is in large part all about. And if the NCAA can just get a limited preemption provision on nil, it will open a portal a pathway to federal legislation that the NCAA can use in the future when the time is right, when the circumstances are right, and it will come back in and ask for absolute federal antitrust immunity and a federal declaration that athletes cannot be employees of their universities. And as I've mentioned in prior episodes, as things stand right now and in the short term, if there isn't the need for a federal enforcement mechanism or a federal governance structure for nil, then the NCAA's relevance has really been called into question and that it is simply fighting for a way to stay relevant in the college sports world. And as we transition here into a discussion of Livingstone, her role here, and then her testimony, I think there's a really important question to ask here. The NCAA is sitting here in Congress asking for these extraordinary protections and immunities. And in this hearing, it explicitly asked for, and so did Linda Livingstone, asked for preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. Same things they were asking in February of 2020. But I think you have to ask the question, what is the NCAA providing in exchange for those extraordinary federal protections and immunities? What are they bringing to the table? What are they giving up? And the answer is nothing. Zero. They can't promise that they're going to deliver name, image, and likeness compensation benefits. Those have already been provided, not because of the NCAA, but in spite of the NCAA. And if the NCAA had gotten these protections and immunities in 2020, preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees, there would be no nil marketplace. There wouldn't be a nil contract in place right now. None, unless it was some kiddie pool nil deal like the waivers that the NCAA approved from time to time between 2015 and 2019. The nil marketplace that you see right now would not exist. And what the NCAA is going to do if it gets preemption is move as quickly and as aggressively as it can to try to pull back on all of this name, image, and likeness activity. And the, in the short run, there's going to be blowback and the athletes are going to complain. 
but the institutional stakeholders are going to be a-okay with it. A-okay. Even the Power 5 schools that are trying to find a way now to use it as a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market, in the recruiting game. They're just going to say, look, we'd rather just not have to deal with this. And so let's just let this thing go. The only criticism is going to come from athletes themselves and from all of these name, image, and likeness companies, these third-party administrator companies that have popped up all over the place who are going to lose their market. That's all you're going to hear. And that's going to be short-lived because the in-system megaphone, the NCAA, the Power Five, and then all their minions in the media, their concubines in the media are going to drown that out. And uh, a, a year after the NCAA kills the market, nobody's going to be talking about it or it'll just be a footnote. Before I leave the preemption issue and, and turn to Dr. Livingstone, I also want to point one other thing out. And this whole debate has been loaded with ironies, just head spinning ironies. And one of them is that the proponents, the conduits, the bag people for the NCAA here have been the Republicans in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. But you have in the Senate, you have Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi, and Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, and Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida, and Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, and Lamar Alexander, Republican from Tennessee, and Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, and Richard Burr, Republican from North Carolina. And on the House side, Anthony Gonzalez, Republican from Ohio, Duncan, Republican from South Carolina, all arguing in favor of preemption and antitrust immunity and federal declarations that athletes can't unionize. And all of these politicians have built their political careers around free markets and states' rights. And they have swallowed their free market speeches and they've swallowed their 10th Amendment. And now they're going Bernie Sanders' big government to snuff out free markets in this one context and to trump states' rights in this one context. And what does that tell you? It speaks to the power of the NCAA as an institution, the power of its propaganda, the power of its lobbyists and its people in the media, and all of the powerful institutional relationships that it has cultivated over the last 70 years. And these Republican legislators are making a mockery of the very principles that they claim to hold. So let's talk about Dr. Livingstone. She is the president of Baylor University, and that's how she presented herself to this committee in her written testimony, in her oral testimony, and in some disclosures that she was required to make to the committee that I'll talk about here in a minute. And she was a Division I student athlete, a spouse of a former Division I student athlete, and the mother of a Division I student athlete who just recently graduated and, and now is coaching. So she says, I am deeply invested in making sure the college athletic experience is a positive one for all student athletes. So she's pitching herself here as the president of Baylor University and then a former athlete and a wife and a mom. And she says, I believe this is a critical time for college athletics as much of the status quo of recent decades is undergoing numerous changes, including the Supreme Court decision in the Austin case, conference realignment, and nil state 
walls. These are all elements of a broader conversation higher education leaders are having to reshape college athletics to better serve the future needs of our students and institutions. To this end, I am pleased to currently serve as the vice chair of the board of directors of the Big 12 Conference and also am proud to have been appointed by the NCAA Board of Governors to the NCAA's Constitutional Committee last month. This committee will look at the core principles that define college sports and propose a new governance model that allows for the NCAA to make quicker changes to better serve student athletes. Let me stop right there. Those are the only affiliations that she discusses. And her relationship to the Big 12 Conference, I guess she feels is important to disclose. And then... The way that she describes her appointment by the NCAA Board of Governors to the NCAA's Constitutional Committee, you come away with the impression that she's just some university president out there that is well-respected and that the NCAA Board of Governors came to her and said, we want you to serve on this committee and that she is a stranger to the NCAA Board of Governors and she is just doing her uh, duty in service of college sports and the interests of student athletes. And then the next uh, paragraph, she goes from, she pivots from that to say, Congress should have an important role in shaping the future of college athletics as well. And now is the time to establish a uniform national standard that addresses the many challenges becoming evident in the nil space. I look forward to sharing my perspective with each of you on what we have learned as an institution and our concerns regarding the multiple nil state laws now in effect. I also look forward to discussing my recommendations for how Congress can play a role in ensuring nil rights for student athletes in the future and preserving the missions of institutions of higher education across the country. So in that characterization, she's saying, I'm a university president here and I'm sharing with you my thoughts as a university president. When she says, I look forward to sharing my perspective with each of you on what we have learned as an institution and our concerns regarding the multiple nil state laws now in effect, she is quite clearly suggesting that she is presenting her testimony through the lens of information she has developed through her role as the president of Baylor University and only her role as the president of Baylor University and the experience of the stakeholders at her institution. And she suggests that her experience at Baylor in the new nil marketplace has led her to have concerns about conflicting state nil laws, but doesn't say why, what information, what experience, how has Baylor University as a university been negatively impacted by the new nil marketplace that exists? She doesn't say, and she really can't say. Because both in her written testimony and her oral testimony, she comes out and says that the Texas law, and Texas has a state name, image, and likeness law, that the Texas law is a great law and it has everything that we need. And it is an ideal name, image, and likeness law. And that everything's hunky-dory in the state of Texas. And then in response to a question about the educational resources they provide to athletes regarding name, image, and likeness, Livingstone answers the question and then pivots to say that 
they already have an existing framework for educational resources for student athletes, and they just plugged a nil right into it. And that framework has allowed them to manage name, image, and likeness issues, to manage compliance with the state law, to enforce any issues that come up if the people are operating outside of the state law, and that they have a very good system already in place that is working very well. So what, what problems does Baylor have? According to the substantive testimony, none, zero. No problems with the state law. No problems with Baylor's compliance with the state law. No confusion about what the state law says. No concerns about having gained or lost a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. She has absolutely no beef, no legitimate beef. So what the hell is she doing at the hearing? There are 1,100 institutions in the NCAA across all three divisions. So there are 1,100 college and university presidents. In Division One. there are 351 schools, so 351 college or university presidents or, or, or chancellors, whatever the highest office is. And within the power five, there are 65 presidents or chancellors. Why is Linda Livingstone sitting behind the microphone in front of Congress on September 30th of 2021? Why is her opinion more or less relevant or valuable than any other similarly situated university president? And the answer to that is that there are only a handful of other similarly situated university presidents in the entire NCAA system. Why? Because Linda Livingstone is one of the most powerful NCAA insiders in the entire NCAA governance structure, which makes her one of the most powerful people in all of college sports. And you would never know that from her written testimony, from her oral testimony or from the disclosures, the truth and testimony disclosures she was required to make to the subcommittee before she testified. And what is it that makes Linda Livingstone one of the most powerful people in all of college sports? Well, she simultaneously sits on both the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA Division I board of directors. And I want to talk a little bit about what those boards are, who is on them, what their authorities are, and the breathtaking power that they wield in college sports. The NCAA Board of Governors is the NCAA's and therefore college sports highest governing body. It's made up of 21 members, 16 of whom come from in the NCAA system, mostly college presidents and chancellors. And then there are five independent members and those independent members are part of the governing board. They have been since 2018 at the suggestion of the Commission on College Basketball to cure obvious conflicts of interest that exist within the NCAA governance structure. And those conflicts of interest have been discussed for years and years and years. And there have been recommendations to have these two powerful boards filled with true outsiders to the NCAA. And there've been proposals to completely eliminate those boards and have an entirely separate board, much like what the Athletes' Bill of Rights advocates. And the reason for that is that the NCAA governance system is undisputedly imbued with massive conflicts of interest that make it almost impossible for them to self-regulate, for them to do what's right, because they are always thinking about the money, the money, the money. That's it. 
the notion that there's going to be change from within is just a fantasy. It's just a fantasy. And the NCAA Board of Governors is the only association-wide governing body. And it's supposed to be the guardian of all of the NCAA's most sacred values and principles. Then the NCAA Division I Board of Directors is probably the most powerful governing body at a practical level because they're in uh, the legislative arena. The Board of Governors, it's really kind of monarchical and there are no checks and balances within that governing body. They are not elected. The members of the Board of Governors, they are self-appointed, they are self-perpetuating, and they report to no one, to no one. The Division One Board of Directors is comprised of 24 members, 20 of whom are required to be university presidents and chancellors. And they basically make the fundamental policy of the Division One, which means they're doing the bidding of the Power Five. And all this top heaviness with presidential leadership at the Division One Board of Directors and the Board of Governors is the product of this movement towards presidential control of college sports. It came out of the Knight Commission's work in the early 1990s and presidential control was gonna be the way that we were gonna rein in commercialism and professionalism and the runaway trade of big time college sports. And these presidents, man, it's like the fox in the hen house because they have just pressed uh, warp speed on commercialization and professionalization and there is no end in sight. In Article 4, of the NCAA constitution titled organization. It lays out the governing bodies and there are three in, in division one. This is the division one manual. And so you have the board of governors, you have the division one board of directors, then you have this division one council, which really doesn't have much uh, consequence because it's true powers eliminated through weighted voting. So football interests have control over the entire NCAA governance process. And that's been a, a long steady process. I talked about that in my pay for play series and also in the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes after the Austin oral argument. And those are, I think, important issues to understand. But the suggestion that these two powerful governing boards give a damn about downstream Division One or Division Two or Division Three is just a, a ruse. And it's just for public relations purposes. Or when inv invoking the interests of those downstream groups, can enhance whatever the agenda of the day is. And that's happening right now with this constitutional committee and the invocation of the interests of divisions two and three. And I'll talk more about that when I get to the constitutional committee. And then the other thing, this may be the most important problem with that entire governance structure is that by definition, by requirement under article four of the NCAA constitution, you have crossover representation between the board of governors and the division one board of directors. And as of today, when you look at the rosters of these two bodies, there are 13 members of the NCAA Board of Governors that also sit on the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. And I'm going to take one of those people out. There's one that can vote on one board, but is ex officio on the other and can't vote. But 12 of those members. So 12 of the 21 on the Board of Governors, 12 of the 24 on the Division One Board of Directors are the same people. So given the small size of these governing bodies and their power and importance, you have really a star chamber of people. And you could combine those two boards. They, they could be one in the same. But what the NCAA does 
by having separate boards is they create the illusion of independence. And that is a big fat lie. And I'm going to talk in a second about some of the duties that the two boards have that make a mockery of independence. But that's how the NCAA portrays their governance model to the outside world. And they don't talk about it a lot because it's not a convenient topic. And there hasn't been a single witness at any of these seven hearings through 35 witness slots that has been called to explain the NCAA governance system, to explain how the NCAA makes its decisions, how it does its business. And that is really important when the NCAA is coming and saying, trust us to sit in the iron throne of college sports regulation and to do so with three of the most extraordinary federal protections and immunities available in our governmental system. Just trust us. And when you look at the governance model, it is a train wreck of conflict of interest. And the, so we have the star chamber quality of these two governing bodies and the 12 people that hold these crossover seats are a star chamber within a star chamber. Linda Livingstone is an NCAA insider of the highest order. She is in the most select group of NCAA insiders. And in that capacity, as a member of the Board of Governors, as a member of the Division I Board of, of Directors, she has a duty of loyalty, a fiduciary duty to the membership and to those governing bodies. That was not on the table. You would never have known in listening to Linda Livingstone's testimony that she was one of the most powerful and conflicted decision makers in all of college sports. And there she is sitting next to Mark Emmert, the president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, as if she is completely independent of him. She has no relationship with him. And she is just a university president coming in to give her outside independent thoughts on the important changes in college sports and the need for all these federal protections and immunities. And when we look at the substance of her testimony, I guess it's just coincidental that it happens to align with everything the NCAA has been asking for all along. But this Mark Emmert thing is just, I mean, it, it falls into the, you just can't make this up category that those two people are sitting next to each other at the witness table without any of, of these relationships and these conflicts on the table, pretending as if they are just arm's length observers and commenters on college sports. But the fact of the matter is that in the governance model, the NCAA president is not elected. He is employed by the NCAA Board of Governors and only the NCAA Board of Governors. The NCAA president doesn't have a responsibility to the membership. He, do, he doesn't report to the membership. He doesn't really have a direct relationship to the membership. His only relationship is with the Board of Governors, and they have the authority to hire and fire the NCAA president, which means that as Mark Emmert is sitting right next to Linda Livingstone at this hearing, he's sitting next to a woman who he reports to. And the flip side of that is that Linda Livingstone is sitting next to the guy whose salary she sets. 
<laughs> whose employment she evaluates. And a big part of this whole charade of the Constitutional Committee is to preserve the NCAA status quo, the NCAA bureaucracy, the NCAA national office, and Mark Emmert's $3 million salary and his private jet setting. And all of those expenses are paid from the labors of revenue-producing Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. Mark Emmert knows that as he's sitting there. Linda Livingstone knows that as she is sitting there. You almost have to have a sense of humor to even talk about this stuff because it is so bad. But the other thing that's interesting about the hats that Livingstone wears here is that in her, when she's wearing her hat as a Division I Board of Directors member, she is responsible because that board is responsible for providing feedback to the Board of Governors on the NCAA president's job performance. So when she's wearing her Board of Governors hat, she's responsible for hiring the guy, for setting his salary, and then for firing him. Then when she's sitting on the Division I Board of Directors side and she's wearing that hat, she's responsible for providing independent input on his job performance. It's nonsensical on its face and just makes a mockery of the entire NCAA governance process. But importantly, it means that there's no meaningful check on the NCAA president's job performance and no intelligent decision about whether he should stay or go. And that dysfunctional dynamic in NCAA governance was on full display at the Board of Governors April 2021 meeting where it, they slipped in in the quote-unquote other business section of their report, the fact that they had extended NCAA President Mark Emmert's contract to 2025. And when that was reported in the media, people who were familiar with all the dysfunction in the NCAA and Mark Emmert's role in 2020 and into 2021 and flying the NCAA plane into the side of the mountain on nil and many other matters. They were shocked. It was Whiskey Tango Foxtrot and the, the vote was unanimous. Now, Linda Livingstone was not on the board in April of 20. 21, but it was interesting. There were some articles written there, and there's one I talked about in that uh, episode 24, Current Events Chaos. And it was written by Alan Blender, who writes for the New York Times, and he was getting quotes from people all off the record saying, What in the world is going on here? This guy's bad news. He needs to go. And Blender tried to get a board of governors member to speak on the record, and they refused to do it. They refused to do it. Mark Emmert doesn't stand in an arm's length relationship to the Board of Governors or the Division One Board of Directors. They're just all in this incestuous little fishbowl and they are doing whatever the hell they want to do with zero accountability, zero accountability. So the only true accountability that they have has come through external regulators and it's those external regulators, Congress, state legislatures, federal courts, free markets that the NCAA is fighting like hell to eliminate because they like living in their little fishbowl and they like their conflicts of interest and they like lying to the public, to Congress and to federal courts about the true nature of their business model and the way that they do their business. That's their stock and trade and they've gotten away with it for decades and that's changed and now they're panicked. Now turn to this truth and testimony disclosure form. And it is a very simple document. And people who testify in front of Congress, this is a form that is applicable for testimony in the House. But they have to sign a document 
that requires them to disclose their interests, to declare their interests. And originally, this form was designed primarily to tease out financial conflicts of interest. And then it was expanded just in 2021, in January of 2021, to include the disclosure of any affiliations that you have that are relevant to the subject matter of the hearing. And the reason for that, this is just common sense 101, is that you want to know where your witnesses are coming from here. And you want to know about conflicts of interest. They're not saying you can't testify if you have conflicts of interest. They just want them on the table so that the testimony can be received in that context. And I'm just going to go through Livingstone's truth in testimony disclosure form. And I'm going to have a link in the show notes to that page on the, the subcommittee website that has all this stuff. You get to, you can see all the witness testimony, the written testimony. You can see the truth and testimony disclosure forms, and you can just see for yourself. But she identifies herself, position title as president, Baylor University. And then the, uh, there are a few questions. Just a, again, this is a very short form. So the, the form asks, are you representing yourself or an organization? And she fills in organization. If you are representing an organization, please list what entity or entities you are representing. And there's a box for that. And she puts Baylor University and only Baylor University. Then for witnesses appearing in a non-governmental capacity, there's an additional question. And this goes to the heart of your affiliations and your biases and your conflicts. And the question is this, are you a fiduciary, including but not limited to a director, officer, advisor, or resident agent of any organization or entity that has an interest in the subject matter of the hearing? If so, please list the name of the organizations or entities. And there's a box and she answers yes. And then she lists two organizations or entities, one president of Baylor University and two director and vice chair of the Big 12 Conference. Guess what's not in that box? Member of the National Collegiate Athletic Association Board of Governors and member of the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. And then she has to attest those disclosures through a, a False Statements Act certification. So who knows, maybe she has some plausible explanation, but I don't see it. And I, and I would say, even if she had some misunderstanding about what this form required in terms of disclosures or whether there's some other excuse that would explain the lack of responsiveness to this very clear question. I think, let's just say that this truth and testimony document doesn't exist. We just take this disclosure document, toss it out the window. It was still incumbent upon Linda Livingstone to disclose to the committee the extent of her affiliations and her direct connection to the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And it, she is not just some university president being pulled out of a hat among uh, the 65 Power 5 schools or the 351 Division I schools. She is the ultimate NCAA insider, and she has an absolute duty to promote NCAA interests. And that's what this hearing was all about. And as we discuss Livingstone's substantive testimony, we're going to do that here in just a second. You begin to see that very little of it has to do with name, image, 
and likeness. And just a couple of more things I want to say. When Linda Livingstone walked into that congressional hearing room, she cannot check at the door the hats that she wears and all these other capacities. She can't just say, today I choose to be the president of Baylor University and only the president of Baylor University. And you check your NCAA Board of Governors hat at the door and you check your NCAA Division I Board of Directors hat at the door and you check your NCAA Constitutional Committee member hat at the door. The witness doesn't get to make that determination unilaterally and then say all these other affiliations are just irrelevant because I am here today in this capacity, not in that capacity. That defeats the whole purpose of the disclosures. And again, taking the disclosures out of the picture, she still had an obligation to tell the committee what the full range of her affiliations were. And these were crucial material, really important affiliations. And the other thing I would also note here is that there is enormous uncertainty about what's happening right now behind the scenes in all of these important decision-making realms in Congress, in the Power Five, at the NCAA. And there are only a handful of people who understand what's actually happening behind the scenes. And Linda Livingstone is one of them in her capacity as both a member of the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors. She sits in these board meetings where they spend a ton of time in executive session getting briefings from lawyers and lobbyists and public relations people about where things actually stand in their congressional campaign, in their relationship to this new name, image, and likeness market, the fallout from Austin, the fallout from the failed attempt to get preemption, all of these crucial things and these important relationships between the Power Five and the NCAA, all the moving parts that will determine the future of college sports, they're being discussed at the highest levels in private. And Linda Livingstone has a seat at the table in those discussions. So let me just talk a little bit about what Dr. Livingstone recommended and the principles that she framed her recommendations around. So she says, Congress has an important role in shaping the future of college athletics and should establish a uniform national standard to address the many challenges becoming evident around nil legislation. In our discussion today, I will consistently go back to three principles that I believe should be the foundation to any federal name, image, and likeness legislation. The first is that all laws governing NIL for student-athletes should treat them as students first and foremost. More than 98% of student-athletes will not compete professionally, and we must remember that we are talking about more than high-visibility sports like football and basketball. So right off the bat, Dr. Livingstone is establishing two things. One, we have to protect the concept of the student athlete, which is a complete fraud. And the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board said so in a memo just the day before this hearing when she said that they were going to refuse to even use the term student athlete because it disguises the true relationship between revenue producing athletes and their universities, which is one of employer and employee. And then she uses a standard throwaway line that you get from the NCAA and in their commercials and all that stuff. And that's that almost all student athletes will not compete professionally. And that's also a way of delegitimizing the 2% 
their interests don't matter because they're special and they're going to make their money when they go pro. That's the implication at least. And then she creates an us against them narrative explicitly by talking about sports other than the high visibility sports like football and basketball. And that's a theme that runs throughout her testimony was a theme throughout the NCAA friendly witnesses at this hearing. And that is the us against them mentality and the women and uh, the minority members of the community, except for the revenue producing athletes are victims and the revenue producing athletes are perpetrators. Then she goes to the second principle and she says that federal legislation should support the current mission of broad sports offerings for a diverse group of student athletes made possible by revenue shared from higher visibility sports to avoid the creation of inequities in the treatment of men and women under an employment model. And that, I mean, she's all over the map there, but basically this is her articulation of the Miles brand conceptualization of the collegiate model that I'm going to address in the next episode. Basically under that model, you take revenue from revenue producing athletes, football and men's basketball, and you maximize that revenue and you just exploit the hell out of those two sports. And then you take all that money and you shift it over to downstream beneficiaries who can't pay for themselves. And what she's saying here in the second principle is that if we do anything that disrupts the status quo, then that's going to be horrible for downstream beneficiaries of the labor of football and men's basketball players. The third principle, she says, is to ensure each institution's mission is preserved and unique circumstances are recognized, appreciating that different schools have different resources source levels. For example, we know that Baylor athletics is vastly different than those of hundreds of smaller institutions. And that is her conflation principle. And that's where she's setting the table for trying to compare the interests of downstream division one products, all of division two, all of division three, to the interests of the power five and the big time college sports marketplace. And that is just a false conflation. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the collegiate model. And then she says, as Congress contemplates federal legislation, I encourage you to seek a national standard that includes the following priorities. First, federal legislation should preempt all current and future state nil laws, which would guarantee that all student athletes have the same nil rights regardless of where they live or study. Then she says, next, the legislation should include clear definitions of nil as commercial activity between student athletes and third parties, not between student athletes and universities. It should prohibit pay for play models operating solely as an incentive to enroll or remain at an institution as a student athlete. And that is the preservation of the student athlete. And those two, this first two, preemption and a non-employment status of athletes are two of the three planks that the NCAA has been promoting from the very beginning of its quest for the Iron Throne in the fall of 2019 and heading into that first Senate hearing in 2020. Also, this is the third one, federal legislation should seek to enhance the student athlete experience and preserve diversity in sport offerings for men and women and ensure student athletes can seek qualified advice about the use of their nil. And then again, using this tactic of conflation, she's talking about making sure that student athletes can seek qualified advice about the use of their nil. Nobody disagrees with that, but that sort of brings in or is, is tagged onto the more important part of that recommendation. And, and that is 
that the legislation should enhance the student athlete experience and preserve diversity in sports offerings for men and women. Then you're back to this conceptualization of the collegiate model that requires the uh, revenue from these two big sports to be used to fund downstream sports that can't pay for themselves. And then finally, she says, the legislation should include a narrow safe harbor for entities that comply with the law. Otherwise, institutions are at risk of endless litigation and could threaten our core missions. So that's the antitrust component. And she calls it a narrow safe harbor. Doesn't that sound good? We just want to snuggle in this narrow safe harbor. But in that harbor are these protections that just fly in the face of our nation's free competition laws. And that's exactly what the unanimous United States Supreme Court said in Austin. But What's important to understand about the way that Livingstone has framed the issues and the recommendations that she makes is that this is the NCAA's agenda. This isn't Baylor University's agenda, and she's not speaking specifically here to Baylor University interests. This is an NCAA campaign, and she is doing the NCAA's bidding here while wearing her hat as the president of Baylor University. And just a note on this invocation of the student athlete. Remember, Livingstone and Emmert and the NCAA want this ensconced into federal law, but as a practical matter, because of the most basic definition of the nil marketplace that exists right now, these nil deals can only be with third parties. They can't be with the university. And under that construction of the relationship, these athletes cannot by definition be employees. So that's already taken care of. And that's part of what Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz was saying at that June 9th hearing just a few months ago when he said, look, this student athlete provision and the antitrust provision have absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And he was absolutely right. And neither Mark Emmert nor Linda Livingstone addresses that point. How are these relevant to the provision of name, image, and likeness benefits? And that marketplace exists right now without any of these protections. And that's the fatal flaw in the argument they're making now after they failed in their original campaign to get these as a precondition to the existence of a name, image, and likeness market. So the very first question that Livingstone got, and this came from Jan Schakowsky, who is the chair of the subcommittee. She's a Democrat, but she's asking uh, Dr. Livingstone about Title IX and the impact of the nil market on uh, women's athletics. And Dr. Livingstone says, I do think there's some real risks and impact potentially on women in college athletics, depending on how this plays out. In some ways, the way nil is playing out now for women's athletics is more like it is really intended to be. We know women sometimes are actually more active on social media than male students, both the student athletes and regular students. And so they are really benefiting in the ways that we intend, as you heard Cami talking about in her conversation. And that's a reference to Ms. March, who is the women's golfer at Washington State, who is African-American. Where we are seeing those that are questionable pay for play are really with football and basketball, the more high profile sports. So right away, what Livingstone is doing is pivoting to this divisive narrative 
that women are doing it the right way. It's these men that we got to worry about. And they're in these corrupt pay for play relationships. And this is really what we have to pay attention to. And then she says, I think over time where you will also see the greater impact and a greater potential negative impact on women's athletes is if we move to more of an employment model. And if you start moving resources to those individuals that generate the revenue, that revenue and those high revenue sports is what supports our women's sports. It supports our non-revenue male sports as well. There you have a pivot away from really from nil. She's talking about the employment model. I think this is an indirect reference in the beginning of her discussion about this athlete's bill of rights legislation out of the Senate through Blumenthal and Booker that has a revenue sharing component where 50% of the revenue generated in these big time programs. And this only applies to the power five. This is completely irrelevant to any other product because those products don't generate revenue. But in those big time products, the athletes bill of rights would send 50% of the revenue back to the people who actually earned it. What a, an amazing concept in the United States of America. But under Livingstone's formulation of what the employment model would look like, that's a horrible thing. And we have to take the money from those who generate it and give it to people who can't pay for themselves. She is creating an us against them narrative between the people by her own admission who generate the wealth and the people who don't. And that is just an indefensible narrative given the demographic of the people who generate the revenue and the demographic of the people who benefit from it. And when I break down the collegiate model in the next episode, I'm going to rely in large part on questions that Dr. Livingstone got from a Republican congressman from North Dakota and then questions that she got from a Republican representative from South Carolina. And in their questions, they were long questions where they were really speechifying and making their case and then throwing out a softball question. But they were specifically referencing the revenue sharing components of any athlete-friendly legislation. And they didn't come out and say the athlete's bill of rights, but that's exactly what they were talking about. And that was the existential threat. So much of Dr. Livingstone's testimony was built around that. And it was the empty chair at this hearing where it was really important and everybody's pointing the finger at it but nobody was there to defend it, really. And they weren't speaking specifically about exactly what that bill said and what its intention was. But there's one thing that was nil specific that I just want to talk about a little bit because this just shows how detached from reality these narratives are that the NCAA has been spinning and that Linda Livingstone adopted. Dr. Livingstone got a question from Bob Latta, who is a representative from Ohio, and he is a Republican, just like Anthony Gonzalez, a Republican from Ohio. And Congressman Latta does a long wind up to his question, and he's talking about the necessity for nil compensation, but we have to have a federal law. We have to preserve the integrity of college sports and the integrity of the collegiate model. But his specific question, he's talking about recruiting inducements and inducements to transfer from one school to another that are built around nil opportunities. He says, 
What guardrails would you suggest that should be put in place around booster or other third-party activity when it comes to recruitment? And Dr. Livingstone says this, I think where we have to think about the guardrails is maybe less about who is doing it, but what they are paying student athletes to do. Because I think when you start thinking about boosters, we certainly want to be careful who is doing it and why they are doing it. But I think it's more about what we are paying them to do. And like Cammy's app, again, another reference to Ms. March, there's a lot of internal references among the NCAA friendly witnesses to reinforce and amplify each other's testimony. But she says, that is perfectly appropriate activity. It is really unrelated in many ways to her role as a student athlete, whereas in other circumstances, we are seeing situations where every member of a sports team is getting paid X dollars just for being on that sports team. Well, that looks very much like an inducement to actually play sports at that institution, because if they leave that institution, that name, image, and likeness payment will not follow them. They only get it because they are at that institution. And I have no idea what was actually in Dr. Livingstone's mind when she made that comment. But what she just described there, an inducement to actually play sports at an institution, that is a perfect description of the athletics scholarship. And one of the grand lies that the NCAA has been telling for decades is that the athletic scholarship is not pay for play, that it is nothing more than reimbursement for the actual costs of attending college. And that is a fraud. Walter Byers, who was the NCAA president from 1951 to 1987, and the one who really developed the entire modern NCAA. It's his blueprint. In his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes, he said that the NCAA's capitulation to the full athletic scholarship in 1956 was outright pay for play. The quid pro quo for an athletic scholarship is that the athlete provides his or her talent and labor in exchange for a scholarship. And Beyer said that that single event was one of the three most important events in the history of college sports because it resulted in outright professionalism. And that has been observed time and time again by commentators in the Northwestern unionization attempt, the Regional Labor Relations Board acknowledged that explicitly because the contract that they evaluated was a contract for services and the services were athletics services. And at oral argument in Austin on March 31st of 2021, Justice Samuel Alito made the exact same point. He said, these athletes are already being paid because the athletic scholarship is a form of payment. So we're not dickering over whether athletes should be paid. We're talking about how much and in what form. And then the National Labor Relations Board, the general counsel, came out and said the same thing the very day before this hearing. And that is, these athletes are employees and the employment relationship, the contract that gives rise to the employment relationship is a contract for athletics services, athletics labor. And that's the long and short of it. Livingstone's point here makes no sense at all. But I want to talk about what I believe she's thinking about here when she says where every member of a sports team is getting paid X dollars because she's talking about that in the context of name, image, and likeness. And there were a couple of companies that were looking at just paying athletes across a roster. One 
came from Jeremy Bloom, and Bloom had a long and nasty fight with the NCAA when they declared him ineligible as a football player because he received uh, name, image, and likeness compensation as an Olympic skier. He was a famous skier and a talented skier, and he also played football in college. And he wanted to be able to continue to play. That's permissible now, but back then it wasn't. And Bloom does not like the NCAA, and he's been on a crusade against the fraud of amateurism. And so what he was saying is he wanted to give some money to the walk-ons, <laughs> not the scholarship players, but the walk-ons who were busting their butts. And one of the reasons he wanted to do that was to counter this fraudulent narrative that this whole nil market was just about the star quarterback at power five schools or the starting point guard at power five schools in men's basketball. He wanted to show that the nil marketplace can be one that accommodates the non-star athletes. So he was looking at walk-ons and then a company approached BYU. I don't think this was Bloom's company. I think it was another company. And they made an offer to the BYU football team where they paid every scholarship player on that team $1,000. So I think they probably had a full complement of 85 scholarships. That's how many they could have at one time on scholarship. So that's $85,000. Then the other thing that this company did was that they were going to pay tuition for one year for all of the walk-ons. And there were 36 walk-ons. And that was going to be in the form of nil compensation. And this company was paying tuition only. They weren't paying any other expense. And it was for only one year. And when you look at the tuition structure at BYU, it is very modest. The tuition is very modest. For Mormons, it's $3,000 a semester or $6,000 a year. For non-Mormons, it's $6,000 a semester or $12,000 a year. And a lot of the walk-ons were Mormons who would have gotten the lower payment. So we're not talking about a whole lot of money here. And what is lost in that rhetoric and that false example that Livingstone puts out is the impact that that single tuition payment might have on a walk-on who is scrambling to try to make ends meet. And in the Mormon community, you have a lot of young adults getting married at a young age and starting families at a young age. There was an article in the Deseret News, I guess that's out in Utah, and it's a, I think it's a Mormon publication. But there's an article that is titled, I Could Hear the Tears in Her Eyes, and then colon, for BYU walk-ons like Talmadge Gunther and Nick Phillips, new nil deal is a life changer. And they talk about, I think it was Gunther. He's married. He and his wife have a one-year-old child. They're scraping together to make ends meet. And when he got this tuition payment, just this one year tuition payment, and because he's Mormon, that would have been a total value of $6,000. And he told his wife, she was crying on the phone. She was crying on the phone. And this was a beautiful use of name, image, and likeness compensation. And I'll tell you this, though, NCAA will probably come in on the backside of that and say, this is just an attempt to skirt scholarship limits, and now we're giving walk-on scholarships. But you weren't going to see Talmadge Gunther or Nick Billups sitting in front of 
Congress telling their story because the NCAA not only doesn't want you to see that, Linda Livingstone uses this type of nil activity as an example of pay for play that is corrupting college sports. And this is these men getting the, these pay for play arrangements. And we should be looking at the way that these women do it, just like Cami is doing it for these social apps that have nothing to do with their athletic ability. And it, it's just a stunning narrative. And the fact in the parallel universe of logic and narratives that the NCAA and people like Linda Livingstone live in, these BYU walk-ons who received life-altering assistance, they are the perpetrators. They are the bad guys. They are the corrupting influence in college sports. And these non-revenue athletes who benefit from the labor of the revenue producing athletes. They're the victims. They're the victims. And that is a perfect end to this episode and a segue into the use of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model as a business model and the profound inequities that are built into that model. So with that, I'm gonna close this episode out and I wanna thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.